going to camp blood, ain't you? Thank you for joining us at Now Playing for our Friday the 13th retrospective. With all the excitement of the Michael Bay remake of Friday the 13th coming out on Friday, February 13th, we here at Now Playing will be looking back at all of the installments in the Friday the 13th movie franchise, from Crystal Lake to New York to Deep Space. You'll never come back again. It's got a death curse. Just a quick warning up front, these are R-rated movies that barely made it past the MPAA, and our discussions of the movies are just as R-rated. And also, these reviews will contain major spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're discussing Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing, and with me today are... Stuart from L.A., this is Arnie, host of Star Wars Action News, the Star Wars collecting podcast you can find at SWActionNews.com. Co-host of Republic Forces Radio Network, the Star Wars Clone Wars Review Podcast, which you can find at RepublicForces.com. Host of the Star Wars Action News Book Club, which you can find at SWActionNews.com. And guest on the Friday the 13th series of Now Playing, which you can find at NowPlayingPodcast.com. So today we're discussing a new beginning because they must have realized, oh crap, we just ended and killed our villain. I thought they actually set us up for a fantastic villain from the last movie, and it turns out it was a big old red herring. I would actually like to read of this movie, Friday the 13th, the wrong direction. I feel <laughs> like, boy, you know, you had very little going for the series, really. Like, you only got your killer in the second movie. He got his costume in the third movie. You maybe got your hero in the fourth movie. And now we're going to throw all of that out and go to a nut house in the woods for a very lame new killer. I feel like, perhaps for the listeners, we should summarize this movie. We haven't done that with the past ones because it's very simple. Teenagers go to woods horny and high. Jason kills them. But this one's a little bit different. This one actually is more story-driven, dare we say. Yes. Yes. As we continue the life of the character Tommy Jarvis, who we don't know exactly what happened to his older sister. We know his mom bit it in the last movie, and we're not sure what happened to his dad ever, as far as I know. And this is, what, five years after the last movie? Well, how old do you think Corey is? Corey looked about 12 in the fourth movie, and this guy is pushing 20. So yeah, it like could have been eight years, and that was 1984, so are we in the 90s now? Let's err on the side of caution. Let's say Tommy's 18 in this one and was 13 in the last one. We'll go five years. But okay. don't forget also that they were continuing the story like the day after, the next day, the next day. So actually, technically speaking, the last movie must have taken place in like 1982 or something, right? But that can't be because we know the first movie took place in 1979 by the fashion, and then in part two, which came out one year later, they said all of that happened five oh, years right, before. You're right, you're right. Yes, and, and not only the fashion, but there is a shot, I think, in part three, or maybe it's four, where they see the tombstone of Mrs. Voorhees, and yes. her death is 1979. So they have definitely told us when that first movie happened and when that second movie happened. Uh, we don't quite know when this new one is, but unless Corey had a growth spurt like mad, this has got to be heading into the 90s. Now, wait a second. The movie opens up with young Corey Feldman looking at Jason's grave, having a nightmare. 
and there was a tombstone there with Jason Voorhees' name on it, but I don't recall a year of death on there. Did they even have that? No. It was kind of graffitied. It was more, you know, just a makeshift tombstone. It didn't actually have date of birth, date of death. Yeah, well, obviously, because it was a dream, because, you know, it was a dream, but I just thought maybe they threw it in there for, for fun. Okay. And so Tommy Jarvis is emotionally disturbed, which was hinted at at the end of the last movie with Corey Feldman's chilling gaze, which lingered at the last shot. And now he is going from, I believe, a sanitarium into a halfway house to be reacclimated with society but Tommy obviously still has some problems as he is about as talkative as most mutes <laughs> And in this halfway house, he's still having these dreams and visions of Jason, which had been, you know, so many years earlier, he's still haunted by the memory of Jason Voorhees. And then at the halfway house, killings begin to happen from a man in a hockey mask. But spoiler alert, it is not Jason Voorhees, but the kindly old coroner. Or is he a paramedic, I guess? Uh, I think he's an EMT. It's hard to know because they come with flashing lights but they're there to get a dead body. And he is killing them because at the very beginning of the movie, a semi-mentally challenged, chocolate bar-loving <laughs> <laughs> resident of the halfway house is... I think anybody can go to this halfway house. I don't even think that, like, mentally challenged is even, like, going to hold you back. Like, do you like chocolate too much? Come. You know, if you don't wipe your face, you belong here, you know. If you can't keep your pants on, sign up. You stutter a little bit, you are deserving to be isolated in the woods. You're dressing up like Madonna. <laughs> if you do impressions of Clint Eastwood all the yeah, time, oh, yes. that guy was Clint Eastwood all the way. Are you talking about Vic, the axe murderer? The guy who kills the chocolate-loving dude. That is Vic, yes. Vic, Vic. kills the chocolate-loving dude because the chocolate-loving dude is just annoying and probably deserving. Uh, <laughs> and so what we don't realize is because the chocolate-loving dude Joey. was at this halfway house because he's an orphan. So he had nowhere else to go but the halfway house. His mother died and his father ran away. But his father was actually that EMT and seeing his son chopped to pieces by Vic made him snap, put on a mask, and start killing people Jason style. Now, what I'm not sure of, is this movie taking place? It's at some kind of a foresty ranch. We're definitely not at a camp. We're not at a lake. Are we near Crystal Lake? I believe that we are. And my belief that we are is because everyone knows who Jason is. When Tommy starts talking about Jason, people know what he's talking about. Well, wouldn't the people get briefed on what Tommy's issues are? Wouldn't they all tell everybody, well, he's haunted by this guy, he had to kill this murderer, yada, yada, yada? Well, you know what? I'm not going to watch the movie again to find <laughs> out, but I believe that enough clues were left to believe that this is just one more, you know, business around the Crystal Lake community. You know, there's barns, there's summer homes, there's campgrounds, and there's crazy houses. And it makes total sense for a kid who's having issues with this Jason character who haunts the Crystal Lake area and kills teenagers there for him to go to the halfway house located in the same area. Very mm -hmm. smart. Yeah, Very good. It's, yeah, he'll get over that trauma. No problem. Let's right go to quick. the place where your mother died. <laughs> you feel better? <laughs> 
you know, I read on, I can't remember if it was Wikipedia or where, we were discussing at the beginning of Friday the 13th Part 2 how Alice was in California. Apparently somebody has retconned that to Alice returned to Crystal Lake to confront her fears, and Jason sniffed her out. But she wasn't at the lake. She was in uh, some apartment building. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. That's just what I read on Wikipedia. Yeah, these are people that have to have uh, closure and continuity. There is none. This series is sloppy. Now, in this part five, we, the audience, are probably supposed to think that Tommy is the killer. This is what was heavily telegraphed at the end of part four, and as we discussed when we were doing part four, Tommy could pick up and be the next Jason, and here it almost kind of takes it a step further in that it's kind of a pseudo-Jason, and that Jason is haunting him, and perhaps, you know, there's some kind of connection there. Dare I bring it up, because I feel like every podcast now I've mentioned in Psycho, but this is actually the premise of Psycho 2 as well. It was Anthony Perkins got out of the nut house and goes back to the Bates Motel, and he keeps seeing Mother, and then people are dying, and oh my God, is he killing them? Or is Mother a real person, or is there a third person that's doing all the killing? Exactly, and I felt the same way about this one. I thought it was really clever that they play with that psychological thing, and then he is snapping all the time because he, they also have him beating the crap out of people because he has anger issues. When did he learn martial arts? I knew he made masks, but boy, the boy's got talent. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you're in rehab and things, there's not a lot to do. It's kind of like prison, but there is a weight room. But I understand that we, the audience, are supposed to think it's Tommy. And I I mean, nothing's more apparent than Tommy goes missing for 45 minutes of the movie during the main kill scenes. But well, yeah. is are we supposed to think the EMT was framing Tommy? No. no. Okay. No. Okay. So the EMT is just freaking nuts. It's not that the EMT is killing people as Jason knowing Tommy has these issues and thus he can get away with all this mayhem and then he won't get caught. I'd like to talk about the, those motivations in a minute, but, uh, but just to make it clear, Tommy, I think, is only one of several potential suspects for these killings. And nobody's trying to frame anybody else. The movie suffers, I think, because there are so many characters, and we've never met any of them other than Tommy. And they're trying to introduce victims and suspects at the same time. And it's just kind of dizzying, actually. But there's also this guy that shows up at a chicken ranch and says, I want to be here. We never know what he's about, but he's scary and, and gruff, and so we think he's maybe it. Or you might think that the kindly owner of the whole thing would be an ironic twist. I think you're also led to believe that possibly, maybe, Jason is real, or this is the ghost of Jason doing all the killing. Well, my two cents on this is, the paramedic almost came out of nowhere, but they did leave clues that it wasn't the actual Jason, and, and they left clues that it might be the paramedic. The obvious lingering look of this paramedic, who we have no idea is the father of this child, when he picks up the body, when he's there, that look of concern and anguish, albeit a simple one, it was a little too much for a paramedic to give. And they also have that ambulance parked in the forest for no reason. So they gave you that clue. But the biggest clue, which I thought was actually pretty smart on their part, was in the flashbacks that Tommy was haunted by Jason. Jason's mask had the red, I guess you would call them accents on them, like he had in the first couple of movies he had the mask on. And in the, the new Jason, the Jason who was killing in this movie, or we're supposed to believe is Jason, had blue accents on the mask. 
So if you notice the mask was different, then you would notice that it's not the same Jason or maybe Jason upgraded to a high, you know, a better mask for some reason. Maybe he decided that big gash in the right side or left side of the head, depending which way, you know, his left side, our right side would be time to go. But that was a huge clue. And I thought that was subtle because at the end of the movie, when Tommy pulls out the mask out of his drawer, it's the blue mask, not the red. So then it also makes a clue like, well, maybe he will do this. You know, it's kind of like still mysterious. Well, I have to say that I noticed the blue this time watching it in my 30s. When I first saw this movie in my teens, I did not notice that difference in the mask. I was not paying attention to the accents of the mask. Again, I was watching it on a 17-inch screen, and those little accents were probably a quarter of an inch in size, but I never noticed. Yeah, and I would like to point out, for me, the big giveaway that it was Roy the EMT was that there is one other scene with him, and I can't even remember the context, but they're on the highway, and the, and the sheriff is there, and he's mad, and he turns to the guy and says, hey, Roy, blah, 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 and then walks out of frame, and the camera hangs on Roy for like five seconds. Do you guys remember this scene? Actually, you know what it was, is the sheriff is saying something like, damn shame, all these kids being hacked up. Yeah, exactly. And Roy turns and goes, you're talking to me, sheriff? Yeah. You're talking to me? <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, taxi driver. But yeah, and that, and yeah, you're right. They do a, a little nod to that. And then like the camera just hangs there. And I'm like, this is a cameo part. If this man had no role in this movie, we wouldn't be looking at him. We wouldn't know his name. I'm like, they have just told us that this guy is someone we need to know. And that was when I knew. I'm like, I don't know why. And I, even when I found out the motivation, I don't buy it. But I'm like, this guy is contingent on the whole murder mystery. Now, let's look at how this compares to part one. Because in part one, we have a bunch of killings and we're not sure who's doing it and why. In part five, we don't know who's doing it and why. When we discussed part one, we said that Sean Cunningham broke the rules of a murder mystery in not even giving us Pamela Voorhees as a suspect. Here in part five, they fixed that. All the players are on the scene in that first scene where the chocolate boy's body is being picked up. Everyone's right there. You've got the crazy Hicks next door. Mm. You've got the sheriff. You've got the EMT. The only one you don't have is that drifter who comes in a little bit later that Mm. you mentioned, Stuart. But right there, you've got your ten little Indians, pretty much. And given that, you know, the question is, which one executed it better? Was it better to have the cheat where the killer first appears in the third reel? Or is it better to have it here where you have all these lingering, obvious shots of the EMT, which, again, Again, when I was 13 and saw this, I didn't get it was the EMT until the end. I just figured it was Jason. I mean, I'm watching Friday the 13th. The killer is Jason. And now that I'm watching it as an adult, knowing that this is the second movie where Jason isn't the killer, I'm watching it and I see these shots and I'm like, how obvious? I didn't think anything about Part 5 was better than the original or any of the other ones. So you're not going to get me to say anything too complimentary. I like the idea that they tried to go back to a murder mystery boiler but it's done so poorly that, you know, I I would not give it a further compliment than that. And I have to agree to an extent. I thought it was kind of interesting they went back to it. But on the other hand, I think now that I have seen this and the complaint about the first movie, I think I like the first movie's way doing it better because it did leave that bit of mystery to it. And maybe it was just they were too obvious with it. And that's the problem. I I agree. It's like... Uh, You know what, even though I couldn't have guessed her, when she finally shows up and tells us why, I buy it. 
-hmm. when I finally learned why Roy the EMT is here, I'm like, huh? You mean that he knew his fat son was at the nut house and he did nothing about it? And then when the fat son gets killed, rather than blame himself for being a, a deadbeat dad, or even more importantly, getting the guy who killed him, who's hauled away in cuffs, this guy says, I'm going to go emulate a killer, puts on a hockey mask, and then just kills anyone that he sees. That is true. I want to point out a couple of things. First of all, Vic is the one who sets all this off by axe-murdering Joey, but Vic is never seen again. Vic lives. Yeah, it's weird. And you know what? I have to say that was an impressive moment in the movie because they're introducing all the characters. You know, there's some girls folding laundry, this and that, and you see the guy with the axe, and I think, aha, this is the same thing as that first movie. They're saying, we want you to think this is the killer, and he's not the killer. And indeed, when Joey turns his back on the guy after, uh, you know, offering him his chocolate bar, the guy just takes an axe right there. And I'm like, wow, that was unexpected. Yes. I also have to question, though, the guy who runs the halfway house from, and I know him from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I mean, you can't not recognize him if you've seen that movie. He has to know that the paramedic is the father of the chocolate bar guy, Joey, you said his name was, right? Joey, because he runs the halfway house, he has all the information. No, his, the father was never listed on the birth certificate. The mother was not married to the father, and the mother had the kid. The father had already run off. Only the mother's name was known. So they, they drop that information for you in the movie? Basically, they say, yeah, don't know who the father is. He ran off before he was born. Which begs the question, how do we know he is the father by looking at his wallet? There's just a picture of grown-up Joey. Yeah, exactly, grown-up Joey, like as if taken the day before the murder. You know, like taken right before the murder. Yeah, <laughs> it's like maybe he had a crush. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> it, it, that doesn't mean to me say, oh, of course he's the real dad you know, hiding in shame in the shadows. No. Because I totally missed that, Arnie. I completely missed the... the it's a dropped line, you know. It's not a big deal, but yeah, the Last Crusade guy, whatever, does not know. That doesn't make any sense because I also was thinking to myself I was watching this because I, apparently I missed that. And maybe I'm just putting too much logic into this, which uh -huh. is completely possible. You would kill the guy who runs this facility first because he would know who you are and your motivation, you know. But again, I'm giving too much credit to this. Well, I think you because but you know what? The real killer is the Pinehurst director anyway. Matthew, I think, is his name. I blame him anyway because he ran a terrible organization, the Pits. <laughs> this man is in charge of mentally unstable people, and he lets them wander off into the woods unsupervised. He lets them chop up what, and the angriest person there, the Clint Eastwood guys, you know, snarling at everyone. He lets him chop wood with an axe? This man is responsible, and it is just such a shame that he's not the one that gets hauled away. But I guess he gets his own sense of justice. With a railroad tie, of all things. It looked like a big mm. railroad spike, and I'm like, where do you get a railroad tie in the middle of the forest? But that's okay. <laughs> I don't know, but you know what? I, did anyone else get the impression this movie hates hippies? Like, this guy is clearly <laughs> like one of those granola, hands-off hippie guys. He's got like a picture of uh, John Lennon on his wall, and... You know, they're all about no rules and nurturing and all of this. And, like, because of that, this whole environment for mass slaughter is created. Well, 
Yes. Let's look at the why if this is a revenge plot. I mean, Pamela Voorhees, I almost understand her mindset after watching all these movies. She was killing not for revenge. She was killing to protect more children from drowning the way hers was by not being watched. She was being proactive. She tried setting fire, she tried poisoning water, and when none of it worked, she killed to protect the children. But here we've got the e MT Roy and Roy is killing to avenge his son, but he doesn't kill the killer, but he kills a couple of greasers with engine trouble. I'm very confused why Roy picked his victims or if Roy just was, I mean, was he out to murder the world? Was he starting at Crystal Lake and he would just keep killing and killing and killing? I mean, was there no one he wouldn't kill? He kills his EMT partner, which admittedly the EMT partner was laughing a bit at Joey's death and about how gruesome it was, but he seems to have no motivation for killing he kills a waitress in a diner what did she do yeah it, they set it up as a crime of passion but really it's so premeditated i mean he didn't just snap and say oh my god i want everyone dead he goes and buys a hockey mask and i don't know where you get a hockey mask in summertime you know where where do you do that sporting goods store yeah you're probably uh, right all right I don't play much hockey. <laughs> you know what I love is that Roy, as Jason, is wearing two masks. Yeah. Or perhaps he's wearing three. One is psychological. Oh. But he's wearing a rubber mask over his head to make him look bald like Jason. And then he's wearing a hockey mask over the rubber mask. Vision problems aside, how come, you know, why would he do that? Yeah, it's so premeditated. I mean, it's such a copycat killing it only would speak to forethought and pre-planning, not somebody that, oh my God, there's my dead fat son, I must kill everyone. I mean, like... And it, where did he get the mask? Was it Halloween? Or did he rob Tommy of it? Because Tommy's still making his masks. Or And why do we never see it? Every other movie has a Jason face reveal. Why not knock the hockey mask off, make us think it's a deformed creature, Jason back from the grave, and then when he falls on the spike, that mask comes off. You know, this has got, got to be the one with the worst plot holes. This is the one that if you're looking for logical progression, it is just going to hurt you to watch this <laughs> film. I think the problem there also is that you know, we don't go into these movies looking for extreme, wonderful, well-written plotting at all. And yeah. a couple of times we've gotten some nice surprises like in part two. In this movie, they start us off expecting more because of the way they started it, because of the premise of the movie. So for me, the reason I think I'm so hung up on plot points and things as opposed to last time is because they set me up with that expectation given the setup of this movie. And so I think they did it to themselves. Uh, you mentioned in the first episode we did of this retrospective series, Stuart, the, the Scooby-Doo aspect. Yes. This was I, – I could not stop thinking about Scooby-Doo once they revealed the murderer, you know, totally because he had that – yeah. it was totally a Scooby-Doo ending. And I, I thought that was, you know, it being kind of cool if he actually, you know, had a last dying word or something about meddling kids. I don't remember the last time Scooby-Doo pushed the villain onto a bed of spikes and killed him. <laughs> I wish he would sometimes. I wish he would. Mm. My question to you is to get back into the movie for a second. Dudley, and I don't care what his name is in the, in the movie, his, he's Dudley. He's always Dudley. His wife today probably calls him Dudley. Reggie the Reckless. Being played by Dudley from Different Strokes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, know. he has like a strange, weird career of being like a, a child in peril by predators. Because yeah, uh, what I remember him from is that special Different Strokes episode 
where um, he's like seduced by the weird neighbor in the in the bathtub. Do people remember this? Yeah, it was the bike shop owner who took topless photos of Reggie and Arnold, and then Arnold left, but Reggie stayed. Yeah, had him dress up as Tarzan, yep. and it was God. That was the weirdest thing I think I ever saw on daytime television. It was just bizarre. But anyway, um, so my question is this. So Dudley, his brother lives in the back of a van. Dudley is only at the halfway house because the grandfather works at the halfway house. So why can't Dudley see his brother more? And why can't Dudley hang out with his brother? And why is the woman who runs the facility in charge of watching Dudley and has to make him go back to the thing? And I'm like, I know, again, I'm getting into plot. But my problem is this. It didn't make any sense. And what's happening is when Dudley goes and the woman's taking him, I thought she was taking him because of all the things that have happened at the halfway house. I think the grandfather even says a line like, you know, he's doing us a favor. Demon's doing us a favor. I thought Reggie was going to stay with Demon because people are getting killed left and right. The two are dead and missing in the woods. And I thought they were getting Reggie to safety by taking him to Demon. But then they go to Demon's. Demon, like, has some enchiladas. And then Dudley goes back to the farm. Maybe they well, saw you know, it. I think you guys are missing what the what the actual cover of the tracks is. We're we're get this. This is a good joke. We're expected to believe Gramps is on the list of suspects. You know, he <laughs> they have to disappear because we have to have Gramps disappear off screen because maybe just maybe he's the one in the hockey mask doing all the killing. Which God, wouldn't that have been a better ending? Wouldn't that have entertained us for hours? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Demon, Reggie's older brother. I I thought DeBarge myself. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Including the fact that in the toilet, he's singing, ooh, baby, ooh, baby, ooh, baby, ooh, baby. I mean, what in the world? Who, who sings on the toilet? There was a weird call and response between Demon, who is, yeah, this total, like, Michael Jackson, 1984 outfitted break dancer. He just needed the glove. And his girlfriend, his weed-toking girlfriend outside the outhouse, yeah, they're, they're cooing to each other <laughs> as he's taking a dump. It is, it is one of the more bizarre scenes. A massively bad dump because he says, damn enchiladas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that is the most romantic thing, is the call and response while massive diarrhea pours out his ass. <laughs> it was oddly sweet. And sickening at the same time, and I was glad that uh, Roy, the EMT, took care of it pretty quick. I can't forget the outhouse kill because, I mean, I think I will never forget that, but the... (laughs) Ooh, baby, baby. Yeah. Just amazing. My wife was watching this with me, and she's been watching all of these with me, and each one she's like, is this the one where the guy gets it in the outhouse? And (laughs) finally we get to this one, and she's like, this is the scene! So, yes, it, it stuck with her the whole time. She remembered that scene. So I will never forget that. I will never forget that. Although I did like the character next door, the amazingly over-the-top cartoonish redneck. Ethel. Ethel, Ethel, Ethel and Jr.? Ethel and Jr., I did not like Junior. I thought Junior did not really do a very good job. But I thought Ethel just was so much fun to watch. I thought she really was like a cartoon character that she was doing it so like so committed to this insanely over-the-top character that I thought she was a joy to watch. And fortunately, she was stuck with this other guy who just wasn't who was just phoning in the redneck, you know? So it was really kind of fun to watch her. And unfortunately, she got killed so quickly. It would have been really kind of fun if she was around for later in the movie and like, you know, yelling at Jason. Honestly, I was happy to get those two off the 
screen. They were just such caricatures. I mean, not that this movie is exactly abound with realism, but <laughs> I thought that they were like Cousin Eddie from Vacation. Yes. Come in and eat my stew! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but she was so, I mean, she was so over the top that it, it started to work for me. He was not. So I didn't mind him. Oh, he got a really cool kill, though. He's decapitated on his bike, right? Mm -hmm. That was awesome. I mean, con you know, in context, that was awesome. It was I'm going to share a little bit of myself right now. When I was a child and watched television and Hee Haw came on, I would start to cry because those people were very upsetting to me. They would pop out of, like, the corn and be like, y'all going to blah, 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 blah. And I would, I would just be – they were so grotesque that I would actually cry. <laughs> and when I saw Ethel spit into the soup – I started to cry. I was like, it all came flooding back. I'm just like, there's something about this kind of woodsy redneck caricature that just kind of, I just turns my stomach. <laughs> I don't you were know. haunted by hee haw. I don't yes, know if it's I was haunted by hee haw in this movie, and that's <laughs> that's a strange confession. <laughs> my favorite death of the whole movie is Violet, who the you know she's just defined that she's this punk girl. She wears headphones all the time, but they can't get the rights to any songs that anybody really knows. So she's always listening to this like Muzak funk stuff. And she's found in her room, like, pop-locking and doing these breakdance moves. And it's 1989, and they're still breakdancing. And Roy is, like, going room to room. And she's just in her room, kind of like, I, it's just about the breakdancing. She's just kind of like, you know, doing the wave, doing the, you know, whatever. And then he just grabs her and, and throws her against the wall, and she will body shock no more. <laughs> I don't remember that at all, but I'm sure it was wonderful. Oh, my God. Well, maybe I just hone in on breakdancing. Anybody breakdances, and I'm there. I'm right there in the moment. Well, you're talking about the breakdancing girl's death. What about the girl who, I forget her name. I think it's, I can't remember her name. Robin, maybe? Yeah. Who she, she turns down the stuttering guy. She then goes upstairs, takes off her shirt, proceeds to go to bed topless in a bunk bed. There's a corpse next to her in a twin-sized bunk bed. She doesn't notice. <laughs> Then she's killed from underneath the bunk bed, which in, I think it was part two, Brock pointed out, how can you not notice somebody under you in a bunk bed? No, part one. But the, was it part one? Part one, yeah. the guy was on top of the bed, and they were walking past that bed. That's right. And then they went underneath that bed. And that's that. And then the same kind of kill from underneath the bed. But this one's more unforgivable because the killer is on the lower bunk. Yeah, the killer's on the lower bunk, and there's a corpse in the bed with you. If you get <laughs> in a bed, there's another human body there, breathing or not. Don't you notice? Absolutely. I don't even know why that girl was there. Did anyone understand what her problem was? The only problem I saw that she had was, like, color and, and sweater vest. I mean, there was no <laughs> discernible problem with her character her sense of style was so off they put her in a halfway house yeah inappropriate laughing when asked out by stutterers <laughs> like you said that halfway house makes no sense None. however for all the things this movie did wrong and even though jason was supposedly not in it it continued the evolution of jason the icon because in the past movies we like we said we've only had a couple where jason is in the mask but this one is the first time we get some of these over-the-top kills we start in this movie having just a machete and a harpoon gun is not enough throwing people out windows now we're going to stick road flags
flares in their mouth. We're going to awesome. gouge out their eyes with some hedge clippers. And we're going to use some leather strap around one's eyes and then tighten it until his head's crushed. Yes, pretty cool. I thought the kills were very clever, although they still do the old standby, you know, of, of killing somebody with a knife through something else. You know, he loves doing that, and I don't know how he knows the M.O. of Jason. I don't know how descriptive it was in those newspaper clippings. I'm glad you brought up the hedge clipper lady. The hedge clipper lady whose last name, real name is Voorhees. In real life, yes, that actress's name is Voorhees. Now, I just want to go on the record saying I am not a horned dog or a pervert, okay? But we have seen a lot of boobs in these movies. These, these movies are boob-filled, and this girl had a rack on her that was insane. Well, here's what's funny about that, though. I did a little bit of IMDBing and some Googling. This is this director's last movie. The director never worked again. But the director's first movie was hardcore porn. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, and- no. If you see this movie, it almost makes sense because we are introduced to characters. I'm still scratching my head why there are greasers in the 80s or if we go with Stuart's math of the year, the 90s. What are these greasers doing? I honestly thought they might be homosexuals going to a leather bar with that hat that guy was wearing. But then we also have the waitress and her boyfriend doing coke in the car. And I'm watching these scenes wondering, who are these characters? Why are we being introduced to them? And all of a sudden, they're dead. And I think the director's hardcore porn sensibilities were at work here because if you've ever watched porn not that i have but from what i've read if the movie goes on too long without a sex scene then you just throw two people in a room to have them fuck well here we hadn't had a kill in 10 minutes so let's introduce two characters and then kill them I see. I think that definitely this was the pornography of horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking of which, uh, since you've done some research, why did Corey not return for this one? Goonies. He was yeah. already signed to do Goonies, but they wanted him back for at least a cameo. They did film that cameo separate from everything else. I don't even think that the other people in that scene were on the set with Corey. It was just Corey, the director, and a rain machine. Many places on the web. I don't know if Corey's out there just putting himself all over the web, but I found no less than nine sites where Corey is quoted saying that the director kept yelling at him to keep his eyes open and berating him for not being able to do so. (laughs) Hmm. Poor Corey. I guess if those women can keep those eyes open with the spunk in their face, Corey should keep his eyes open to the rain machine. Wow, Arnie. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, While you're talking about the Corey Feldman sequence for a moment, I loved, I actually laughed out loud um, when it was clearly a dream sequence at that point. But when Jason gets out of the grave in the beginning of the movie, not only is he buried in the hockey mask, he's buried with a machete. Made me <laughs> And some other weapon. Made me laugh, man. I just thought that was really funny. Dream sequence. They can do anything in a dream. I thought, it, why not a ballet at that point? A dream ballet. It'd be kind of fun. <laughs> I think that's coming next. <laughs> A couple other things that this movie did to further the character of Jason. This is the first one where Jason never runs. Jason only walks. That's one of Jason's big telltale things is that he stalks after you. In all the previous movies, Jason had to book. This one, even though it's not really Jason, he just kind of walks there knowing he's going to get to you. Well, if okay. it's not Jason, how, or why are you attributing it to Jason? 
Yeah. Because this is something that happens to with Jason in every following movie. It started here. I mean, even though this isn't really Jason, you can't deny that this is a continuation of that character with the over-the-top kills and also the outfit that Jason is wearing in this movie. Because in all the previous ones, Jason's wearing some kind of woodsy thing. Sometimes he's wearing flannel. You know, here he's wearing kind of like a work suit or something. Uh, uh, a a jumpsuit. Jump and he's been wearing that jumpsuit ever since but it started in this movie so that's a huge continuity error because it's not actually him <laughs> yes but <laughs> it continued the characterization i mean mm -hmm. trying to figure out the formula of jason continued in this movie even if jason the character wasn't in this movie i get your point okay okay yeah well you know there's a there's a reason why the man walks slow he's a zombie i mean as we'll see the next one he uh he's rotted you're not buying it no i completely agree but it made no sense why roy would move slow if roy is a human killer then wouldn't roy be scrambling i mean somebody could get away hey i'm willing to make a pact can we pretend this movie never happened <laughs> the series certainly does <laughs> yeah honestly. i would just like to totally repress this because this is the pits. I don't believe they ever made a worse one. And I think they knew it when it came out. I think that they were like, we have to recover. It's kind of like a jump the shark moment. It's kind of like Halloween 3 when they're like, hey, let's do one without Michael Myers and we'll have a bunch of warlocks making masks that make snakes come out of kids' faces when they watch TV. And it's like... After they wake up from that hangover, they go, oh, my God, get Michael Myers back, and let's just do a whole thing just like we did in the old days. You know, I got to disagree a little bit here. I still think three is the pits for me. I actually enjoyed the fact that they tried here to give me something a little bit different and tried to make it all work. I understand it didn't work. I understand the execution wasn't the best, no pun intended. I just don't think that I can sit here and agree with you that this was worse than part three, because I can't. I can. I can say that because part three at least had some things that weren't so bad. Part three was poorly acted, poorly written, poorly paced, poorly plotted, but this one was <laughs> dumb. <laughs> But the catering was smoking. <laughs> I mean, amazing. And that yo-yo Actually, it's funny thing. you say that, Stuart, because I was listening to the commentary. <laughs> Apparently, part three had some damn fine egg rolls. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least there's that. And I, again, would plug for part three if it did nothing else right, and I don't think it did. It figured out the formula. It is the movie that all future sequels emulate. When we're watching a Friday the 13th Part 8, we're not watching them trying to recreate Part 1. They're recreating the dynamics of Part 3. Okay, I'm just saying I'd enjoyed watching this one more, and I actually enjoyed, you know, a little bit more of the plotting and stuff, but... I can see both of your points on this, but here's what I think we're seeing a dichotomy of. Brock is looking at this from the point of view of which film is a little bit better made and a little bit more entertaining, whereas Stuart and I are looking at this from the point of the audience got robbed by the script, by the fact that it's Roy the killer. It's not even Tommy, right. it's not even Jason, and so at the end when Roy is sitting there dead and it's been Roy the whole time, we as the audience just feels pissed off. <laughs> No, I was if, pissed off, if too. If you're going to remove the only thing you got going for you in a franchise, the only thing that people like and that's consistent, other than the location, 
you have got to find something that is of equal interest. And a, a paramedic with a hazy motivation and no game, like just ripping off the old killer, why do that? Why not come up with a new killer with a new gimmick, at least? No, and I agree with you guys. I was severely disappointed at the end of the movie. I was like, oh, what a letdown. I completely agree with that. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But I just felt that the entire ride of the movie, the entire, as Arnie said, the entertainment value for me in this movie was higher than in the third one. So I like this one better than the third one. But I completely agree how disappointing the ending was. Completely. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the ending of this movie because once again, we're teased into, well, maybe next time Tommy will be the killer. Yeah. Because now Tommy's in the hospital. He got slashed across the chest. He's had to deal with not one, but two serial killers in a hockey mask, both of whom he has killed. And then he finally snaps. He pulls the hockey mask out of his hospital drawer. I don't know who put it there. <laughs> And then proceeds to attack Pam. Well, he's always had it because he had the, his old masks. And he, I think he did keep the, the mask at the end of part four, right? No, was, this is the blue mask. He pulled the blue mask out of the drawer. This is not the same he, mask. He pulled Roy's oh. mask out. Oh. And he's in the hospital, as far as I can tell, recovering from his slash wound. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. I assumed that was the real Jason mask. No, that's... But see, no. I'm not looking for those colored accent marks. That was clearly... Where what I didn't pick up on. <laughs> After this, I mean, was it going to be the killer of the movie? Did we have Jason, then Roy, then Tommy? <laughs> I feel like they felt like they had to have some kind of twist. And nobody, nobody wanted to see Roy the EMT pop up again. It was like, no, you know what? Let him lay on the slab. So they had to have some kind of gotcha moment. I mean, that's what the series does. I mean, right. it was either that or, you know, having something jump out of the lake, right? I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I always feel like that's their standby, you know. He'll get on a boat and, uh, yes. you know, I don't know who could pop up at this point. Corey Feldman, maybe. <laughs> maybe Corey Haim will come out of the lake and just attack him. It was a cheap move. They didn't even commit to it. When you see the next film, he is a hero. He is not a psychopath. Oh, thanks and, for ruining uh, it for me. Well, sorry. That's no, <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, basically, when the next movie happens, it's like this one didn't. And I like it. <laughs> oh, we should probably talk about part six on the podcast for part six. But right now, we should finish up here. So, I think I know the answer, but Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning? I recommend that you, you fast forward to the scene in which Demon sings on the toilet. <laughs> and then you watch Violet breakdance and get killed. And then you never, ever look back. While Stuart would like to see his childhood slaughtered on screen by Roy, I personally don't find that much vicarious pleasure in seeing 80s archetypes dismembered, and I don't want to see this movie ever again. I recommend I never watch it again, let alone any of you listeners. I have to agree. I think this one could definitely be skipped, and hopefully on to part six when Jason lives. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to our Friday the 13th retrospective. We will be reviewing two Friday the 13th episodes each week, up to the release of the new movie in February. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to get the latest episodes. If you did. If you did. If you did. If you did.
Now playing is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.